Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here and teach Old Testament, and I'm joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, Dr. Grace Atanto, our professor of systematic theology, Dr. Paul Jean, professor of New Testament and pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Northern Virginia, and Dr. Peter Lee, Professor of Old Testament, our Dean of Students. And we are wrapping up now our Apostles' Creed series. This is the last episode about the Apostles' Creed. And what we want to do during this episode is actually talk about, okay, so what? How do we use the Apostles' Creed? Now that we've talked about it, how do we use it in the life of the church? How should it be used in worship, in spiritual formation? How should we think about it? It's not scripture, and yet it is very old and has, uh, as we say, stood the test of time. And so it has this value in that the church has kind of voted over the last two millennia or so, give or take a few centuries, and has voted and found it uh, very useful. And so we still say it today. So we want to talk just a little bit about the use of the Apostles' Creed in the life of the Christian. So I, I'd like to do that by starting with our real pastor, Dr. Paul Jean, professor of New Testament and our pastor here at New City Church. Paul, do you guys use the, the Apostles' Creed? If so, how? What do you think is the value of it for the Christian today? We've never used the Apostles' Creed. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. so we, we, we use so I was asking that, I was actually, uh, <laughs> uh, wait a minute, do they use the Apostles' Creed? No, we use it. And um, there are so many ways to answer this, but something I've been thinking about for a long time is, um, you know, our culture talks about not being narrow-minded, you know, let's be open-minded. But I think if we don't have a high view of tradition, history, and even in the church, if we have a spirituality that's defined mainly in terms of me and my Bible, uh, we inevitably become uh, very narrow-minded, whether it's just we think the way our culture thinks or we all have our um, biases when it comes to highlighting certain portions of the Bible. So I have found like confessions, creeds to be actually so enlightening. You know, creeds have taught me to think about scripture in a way that I probably would not have. And so that's what I would encourage people. Like there's this view that if you're uh, uh, remotely interested in theology, then you're in dogmatic in a stubborn and narrow-minded way. I would suggest it's uh, actually the opposite. And um, I tend to view uh, theological study, especially in the forms of confessions and creeds, as the Bible study that transcends your immediate place and time. So, you know, I always tell people if you're very serious about not being narrow-minded, then you should be creedal. You should be doctrinal. Uh, you should have a high view of like the confessions. I think that's a great point, Paul. And one of the worst things that could also happen is that you would think that whatever your theology is just happens to be a replication of what the Bible says. So instead of saying, hey, I'm humble enough to acknowledge that I'm a finite reader and my theology could be distinct from the Bible, and this is why I need the creeds and confessions to help me, to guide me. And that's also a way for me to be honest with you that, you know, here's my confession of faith. You can check my confession of faith and see if whether or not it matches the Bible. If you take away the Christian confessions, what you're communicating is basically, my view is just what the Bible says. And that actually stops you from being able to receive good criticism, good vulnerability. 
um, that you would need so that you can actually always refine your own view. So instead of, you know, having the creeds and confessions making you a kind of a prideful, boastful sort of person who's dogmatic, as you were saying, Paul, it actually makes you way more humble. And it's actually the one who says, my views are just what the Bible says. That's the person who's actually more dogmatically inclined and more prideful in their the way they help their position. It's somewhat related to that. It's been interesting that as you pastor people, they'll say maybe years later, hey, you know, after much biblical study and reflection, I've come to believe this about, um, you know, the Bible. But more recently, an older man told me that uh, he came to this epiphany that the best way to read the Old Testament is in view of Jesus, right? And you know, I was I was glad he came to that. But, you know, what I tried to also encourage him to see is that's actually not a new finding. And, um, and I think that that moment was good for him because he began to see uh, that there was pride uh, in his approach to just spirituality and thinking that I am sufficient uh, with just my Bible. And I, I think it's a weird version of like, uh, like this misunderstanding of that phrase in Christ alone, like Christ is all I need. That's definitely true from the perspective of like salvation, you know, Christ alone is our justification, but in terms of spirituality and sanctification, uh, we need the body and that body transcends again, um, our time and place. Yeah. I think it's interesting that people are you know, very happy to say, Oh no, the Holy spirit is guiding me as I read the scripture. It's, it's, it's opening the word to me. And yet by ignoring tradition, you're kind of ignoring that the Holy spirit has ever done this for anybody else. Right. I mean, obviously we would consider it arrogant to not listen to a teacher or someone who's sitting down with you maybe has some more experience or some more, uh, a different perspective than you in reading scripture. And um, yet I think those, those churches that kind of eschew tradition or eschew the history of the church um, are missing the fact that we don't just have the person who happens to be around us or in our church, but we also have this incredible cloud of witnesses, as we say, right? We have the communion of saints and the Holy spirit has been revealing the scriptures over time. And there are, there are, there are articulations and formulations of Christian theology like the apostles creed that connect us to that kind of trans historical cross historical, um, you know, global church. And um, it's actually a way also that we can fight against being too culturally bound. When I'm citing the Apostles' Creed, I'm, I'm kind of breaking free of my modern 21st century American context. And I'm, I'm, I'm basically joining in with these voices from hundreds of years ago and, and letting their, their testimony be my testimony. Yeah, that's such an important point. Cross-cultural, cross um time you know that this this has been a bond for christians for a long time now it reminds me of we had a a, a gentleman at our church who who is not a, he was at a presbyterian church but he wouldn't uh, kind of call himself presbyterian he he had a mixed uh, denominational background and um and so you know at points um there there were points you know in our service or in our liturgy um and our in our practices where you know, he, it might push against his, you know, expectations and hopes. And it was interesting because one of the things that he loved most about the service was the Apostles' Creed. 
because it was, you know, in that moment where, you know, whatever was said, you know, during the sermon or, uh, you know, whatever's being done in the rest of the church, you know, he felt this bond of fellowship uh, that we were all together reciting this ancient, uh, this ancient creed where confessing things that are properly basic to the faith, things that the world thinks are crazy. And yet, we all believe and this is our life and this what is what binds us uh, binds us together so so the the creeds sometimes are are this approached as this kind of dividing line but they have a unifying function as well very important one um and it's not just unifying for us as a body in the in the contemporary church but unifying with the church in all ages the one holy catholic and apostolic church yeah, and that's why, I mean, I think in looking at my upbringing, I was raised in a, you know, different levels of, of liturgical style churches, right? So sometimes Anglican, sometimes Presbyterian, but there was a constant throughout in the Anglican churches, of course, we said the Apostles' Creed every week. In some Presbyterian churches, we just did it with the Lord's Supper. And there is something to having that down deep and kind of the, the deep structure, you know, the deep structure of your theological software, right? You know, the idea is it's a part of the operating system and it goes way back. And I, I mean, I take joy in seeing my seven-year-old back when she was five and four even knowing the Apostles' Creed just because she had heard it so much. And it's something that's deep inside of her this Trinitarian structure, this way of thinking. Interestingly, I mean, being raised this way, I don't think it was until I was in high school that I realized that there was a Trinitarian structure to it. I just, you know, cause I didn't, I, I was often saying it from having learned it, you know, learned it audibly. I didn't learn it from reading it. And so I didn't realize that there is this kind of basic Trinitarian structure, you know, and I was also maybe a bit of a slow kid, but you know, you just, it, it's, it's a really a beautiful articulation of faith that, I like for my children to know it at an early age. And it's not because it's the Bible. It's not because it's, it's scripture or something like that. I want them to also be able to memorize Bible verses, but this is this old creed that sets them apart as these people who cite this creed that goes back for so long. And they sang it with Christians from very different time periods. And I think it gives a depth to faith and a depth to spiritual formation. That's really beautiful. And I think about it every time we say it in church, you know, I think about the fact that this is not something that somebody just came up with last week. So yeah, this kind of the, the, the regular recitation of it, I think is also important. I totally agree. I think that, uh, I think it's great that, you know, when uh, the instructional application of the, of the creed and because it makes, you know, the, the God that we as the parents believe in, as the children's God as well. That's not mom and dad's Jesus. It's, it's my Jesus, you know, uh, this is what I believe. And, and it allows them to be able to claim this confession, which is so clear. And I think that's what I benefit about. And what I love about the creed, it, it's, it's so easy to comprehend, you know, line by line, although there's a depth in each one, a child can confess that and then be unified with the same and bonded together with their parents and, and make this God their very own. And, 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 and that's really important. You know, you don't want these kids growing up, you know, uh, saying this is the, um, the Jesus who my parents believe in or my pastor teaches. 
You know, you don't want that. You want them to be able to say, this is my God that I believe in. And, and being able to recite this uh, on a regular basis does, you know, I love the phrase you use, Scott, trans-historical. I think that's great. Uh, and how the creed allows us as the contemporary church to be bonded with the ancient church, the, the historic Catholic church, but also the, um, the cross-cultural aspect, the, the, the cross-generational aspect. And how that could be all bonded together, because you know it's the one moment in the in the or at least for those churches that really use the creed, you know it just allows for all of God's people for that one moment to be able to be bonded together in one in one universal confession, and there there's something incredibly powerful, uh, really beautiful, very um, you know really moving about that idea. And the more I think about the discussion in the last year of and this desperation for uh, for unity and for community uh, and how we've got it right here, you know, right before our very eyes. Well, you know, in a manner of speaking, that that can be applied and used that whether you're, you know, regardless of what uh, church tradition you come from, you, we recite this creed and, and it bonds God's people together across, you know, and I think as a Korean guy, I, I love that. You know, to be reminded that my identity is priority is is in this confession and in my identity as a as a Christian man above all things. And this makes me, you know, one with you guys, even with Gray, you know, that uh, and and we can do this while he's in Indonesia, while we're here in D.C. with our brethren in Chicago and in in California and uh, I don't know. I, I just I just think that's incredibly moving, powerful, and what a statement that is for the church to be able to to make. You know, regardless of all of our backgrounds and idiosyncrasies and eccentricities and so forth, we all have this one profession, and this this is what defines us. You want to know what makes us? This this is what defines us. There's that's I, I, we should have like. A... Peace marches with the with the Apostles' Creed on the sign. Then, like unity marches, we'll just recite the Apostles' Creed. In, in a manner of speaking, isn't that what we do on Sunday mornings? The ones yeah, that practice right. the creed. Yeah, it's, it's it. essentially what we're doing. And those early creeds have a special kind of place in that process. I think um, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedon. You know, these uh, maybe Gray can speak more to this, but these kind of, uh, especially these these early creeds have that weight to them that, that the whole, you know, all of Christendom confesses these creeds. And, and so we're not defining ourselves, at least presently, and not defining ourselves as, as a part, but defining ourselves as together. And I think it's worth emphasizing that being Protestants, we can confess this all the same. And even better, I think when we take a look at the history of the Reformation, you know, we did not want to refer to ourselves as Calvinists or as Lutherans. Really, the emphasis was that we were Reformed Catholics, right? We're trying to connect our past. Uh, I'm sorry. We're trying to connect our faith today to the faith of the church in the past. And so, you know, one scholar had mentioned that what distinguishes the Reformational churches from Roman Catholic churches is that we don't have a papal succession, but we still do have a succession, but it's a doctrinal succession. And I think we saw this in the way in which the Heidelberg Catechism, which we've quoted time and time again throughout our podcast recordings here, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism was commenting on the Apostles' Creed. When you take a look at the Westminster Standards, how much of what it says about the doctrine of God, 
it's completely reliant upon the pro-Nicene tradition, so much of what it says about Christology in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, I believe, right? It's it's basically almost sometimes a reproduction of the Chalcedonian Creed. So what we see in the Reformation is actually this deep rootedness and the claim is not that we're starting something new. And I think what's been kind of implicit in our conversation history is that when we start something so something new, when we completely reject the language and the conceptual confession of our past, we're actually the ones breaking away from unity. We're actually the ones who are being sectarian at that point. People think if we just we're just joining the historical tradition, then we are being sectarian. No, actually starting something new makes you sectarian because you are breaking yourself away from this shared unity that you all have been so good at emphasizing. And again, we see that in the history of the Reformation. We see this, that as Protestants, we get to be rooted in history. And it's not just something that other traditions can say. And as a matter of fact, if we take the Protestant critique of the medieval Roman church, then we're trying to go back to this, right? We're actually trying to rightly claim this line. I, I still hear today people say, you know, I was raised in a Protestant church and I didn't realize the church history preceded the Reformation. And I want to say, that's terrible. <laughs> Did you ever say the Apostles' Creed? You know, I mean, the the argument of the reformers, of course, is that we want to return to the belief of the ancient church, the classical the church, the early church, right? And we want to reform the church from the inside and not, not this idea of let's start a new denomination that begins today, right? And I think that's so often missed and because of work like yours, Gray, and, and a lot of others in, in historical theology, I think that's being brought to the fore again, the fact that we are a part of this reformed, orthodox, yeah, Catholic, small C Catholic church. Um, and we need to retrieve that tradition. I think one of the things that, that will arise here and that often arises, something that I've heard from congregants is, you know, both as a complaint to liturgy in general, but more specifically to the use of the creeds, uh, is that, you know, you're just saying it wrote, you know, do you, how do you ascribe with integrity? You know, we've been talking about the creeds as being a, you know, th this thing that we, we can affirm and, and Gray mentioned, you know, it's, it's those who go against the creeds that are sectarians. Okay. But then how do I treat the creeds as secondary to scripture? You know, I'll go where scripture goes and not where the creeds go, but then also the idea of, of confessing with, you know, with integrity as th this is my view. This is, this is not just something that I I'm programmed to say, but this is actually you know, something that I hold, how, how do we, how do we avoid kind of the, the recitation of the creed becoming um, rote or just perfunctory? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think just in terms of my own response, when the pastor says, dear Christian, what do you believe that that shocks me out of liturgical dead rest of your recitation? Um, there is something about saying, no, this is you, you're going to say it. This is your belief. There's a performative aspect to the creed in that language, I believe. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't perform that by rote or, or you know, automatically or mechanistically or something. But the fact that the language is articulated in that performative way, I believe. You're not just saying Christian theology is or something like that. You're saying, I believe. I think there's also a way we can do this with kids as and and with adults as we're growing up it's kind of walking them through okay what are you saying when you say these things 
You know, what, what do you mean by these individual articles? Um, I think even to this day, and it's probably going back to my childhood, seeing that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church still makes me pause for a moment and go, oh, yeah, I, I forgot about that. Because when I was a kid, I read that and said, wait, we're not Catholics. And now it makes me sort of be aware of what's happening. But that's always a problem with liturgy, right? There's this idea, there's these conflicting beliefs. One is that, you know, novelty is the thing that breeds ecstasy and experience. And the other one is that familiarity breeds ecstasy and experience, right? And, 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 and neither is true 100% of the time. But I think there is something to having a thing be so familiar that you can say it without even thinking about it. So it's so deep down. And yet at the same time, every time you saying it, putting, you know, there, there needs to be a premium and a focus on saying, no, I, this is what I really believe. This is what I really, I'm really committed to this. This truth has changed my life. And there's actually a really powerful experience that can come out of that, which I think is often forgotten when people talk about dead liturgies and that sort of thing. Yeah. I was going to say, actually, that I think that kind of criticism is overrated. I think that that kind of criticism prioritizes the kind of extreme manifestations of emotional experience as the pinnacle of authentic faith. When actually, when we're talking about, quote unquote, rote liturgical experience, I think oftentimes what happens is actually this is habitual, like what Scott was saying, that this has become so deep down that it's second nature. And actually, that's a wonderful thing. I think that the fact that it can become habitual, it's not something we can take for granted. And it's something that needs a long period of time for you to be habituated in. And I, oftentimes when somebody says that to me, you know, doesn't this become rote really quickly? I said, I don't think so, firstly. And secondly, well, can you recite the Apostles' Creed for me now? Have you memorized it? And oftentimes they would probably smile and say, no, I haven't. And then they kind of walk away. And it's an awkward conversation perhaps, but, but really that sense of, habitual deep knowing that becomes second nature that becomes tacit and becomes precognitive because it's so wired within you that's a wonderful thing it's like you know saying i love you to your spouse or yep waking up to your early morning coffee oh that's beautiful know, yeah or or you know being habitually not thinking about it and you're just able to go and for a run every day, you know, I mean, that, that's something really significant. It's not something you should take for granted. And it's actually something that you should achieve. So rather than something rote being the worst thing, I think that something habitual could be the outcome of this long process of, you know, liturgical practice. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. That that's, that's great. Um, you convinced me, But, but to, I mean, to Tommy's point, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good question, and, and I'm sure it's one that, uh, you know, the, the ones who uh, tend to not practice the creed uh, or perhaps just avoid creeds in general perhaps is, is what they make. Uh, I have to say there's something, there's something very stable about making that confession weekly, you know, with all the chaos that goes on throughout a week from, uh, from week to week or day to day uh, to be able to come back to something so foundational something that you know is going to be there that can be a comfort and a, and and oftentimes i think a reminder i i, I wonder if we underestimate you know uh, being reminded of what we know to be true uh and that the whole notion of uh, hearing a sermon for example that is innovative fresh that's never that has been you know is providing some new insight into scripture is again a bit uh, overrated I think it was George Orwell who once said that the the greatest task for educated people 
is to be reminded of the obvious, you know, that which we know to be true and be and not to lose sight of that. And I think I appreciate the stability of a regular confession uh, on a uh, that we can make uh, something that is reliable. Um, you know, it's almost a reflection of, of the Lord himself and his, in his stability and his provision daily. I think that's a great point, Peter and Gray. I mean, in a culture, and I'm speaking broadly of culture here, but generally speaking, if you look around us, we're looking for the new and the spontaneous, or at least the appearance of newness and the appearance of spontaneity. And the reality of the things that you were talking about there, Gray, you know, morning coffee with a loved one, or I think as a parent, the nightly liturgy of bedtime and how my children and I cling to that, cling to that liturgy. You know, there's a beauty in the familiarity that, you know, arguably might be the thing that actually forms you more than just the experience of the new, which is sort of counter counterintuitive, I think, in, in a lot of modern lights. But yeah, this, this idea of something being that deep down and involved in your spiritual formation, the forming of your character um, is what I think the Apostles' Creed and its recitation is speaking to. Brothers, it's been so enjoyable over the last couple of months to talk through the Apostles' Creed. You have helped me and my experience of it so much more um, just through your expertise and your own personal experience and your own backgrounds. And it reminds me of what we've been talking about today, how important it is to rely on others and the work of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives as they grow in the faith and as they're reading the scriptures and as they are seeing Christ anew and growing in their knowledge of him. And that's what this conversation has been for me. And I, I look forward to continuing and having more conversations. We are moving on now uh, to another series um, and we'll pick up next week with that. And until then, take care. I hope that people hear this and use the Apostles Creed more. I don't want to do that. That's that's terrible. <laughs> this isn't a public service. I, I think I think you were you were on on onto something there. Onto something with the first part. Just stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's what I should have done. Sometimes the segue comes before I know where it's going. <clears throat> Brothers, it's been so enjoyable over the last couple of months to talk through the Apostles' Creed. You have helped me.